Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who hopes to see drones as part of the PropTech stack and in my spare time, I want to know more about how PropTech is actually developing in Asia. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today, I have Charles Anderson, founder of Charles Reed Anderson and Associates. Welcome, Charles, and it's great to have you back again. Hello, Bernard. Great to be back again. So since we last spoke, what have you been up to? See, the last time we spoke was after IoT World. So we were talking more specifically about the Internet of Things. Since then, it seems like it's been quite busy in the prop tech space. So I've done a couple of events around that. One of the property gurus, property summits up in Bangkok. I did the Cornic Global event. So I spent a lot of time the last couple of months looking more deeply into this space. So... Today, you wanted to talk about PropTech in Asia-Pacific. This is actually deviating from the usual Internet of Things conversations we have. I want to start off into understanding what is PropTech like in Asia-Pacific. So can you define what property tech or PropTech in short means for the industry or for the layman out there? I think that's pretty easy, actually. It's just another buzzword that we've created recently. So we have FinTech, which is about financial technologies. PropTech is just about property technologies. And all we're really doing is using some existing and some emerging technologies and solutions to help improve a process that could sit inside of those different areas of the property industry and the construction industry. What does PropTech do differently or maybe it is currently augmenting the traditional real estate supply chain in property? I think what you see is the property construction industry has been a laggard when it comes to adopting technology. In some of the areas, it's easier to use technology. So on the investment and funding side, they're pretty good at automating things. When it comes to sales and leasing, and whether we're talking about consumer or commercial, they've been good about creating online marketplaces and allowing people to access information. I think where there's a real lot of opportunities in that supply chain side is when you look at doing the two other key areas, which is property development and then facilities management. So property development is basically when you're going to build a new building or you're going to fit out a new office space. And the management is sort of the in-life component. So once it's in life, how do you manage everything from your heating and air conditioning to your space utilization to the quality of air inside of the building, whatever that may be? So for example, let's say in construction, I've seen in PropTech, for example, Komatsu is now using a thousand drones from DJI to do construction. They're trying to do it without human beings. So does that actually facilitate under the PropTech space as well? Oh, definitely. That's more the future of PropTech instead of what we're seeing in mass market today. But there's a lot of exciting things that you'll see around drones and a lot of the other emerging tech. Things like AR and VR are starting to really take hold in the industry blockchain eventually for doing things like smart contracts. It will help streamline things going forward. But like I said, it's still quite early days. So something like WeWork, for example, which actually redefines how real estate leasing is happening, do that constitute also under the prop tech space as well? Definitely, because WeWork, when you think about it, is really just trying to create a new model of a commercial real estate firm. So by leveraging technology to streamline things, it's a fascinating one. I mean, the, the market cap, or the valuation that you hear about for WeWork is something like $40 billion they're talking about. And a lot of that's due to the SoftBank investment where they put in $4.4 billion. If you compare that to the two biggest players in commercial real estate, which are CBRE and JLL, they have market caps of $14 billion and $5.6 billion, respectively. So basically, you know, WeWork's coming in there and already valued at three times the value of CBRE and seven times the value of JLL. And these are very old, established companies in the industry. 
So this is actually becoming very interesting in Asia Pacific because property is really the main business that drives almost everything in this region. So what kind of products and services they are now making PropTech interesting for the real estate industry then? I think what I like about it right now is there's things that we can do which are pretty basic and have proven use cases to drive efficiency. And why I like that is I'm a big fan of things that solve problems. So if you look at the supply chain for you know the construction industry, we can start streamlining that. I already capture a lot of information inside of our buildings, but now we're seeing new models come out and new solutions that allow us to better manage it, drive quick ROI, increase the life of our assets. So it's starting to really move on. We've also had a lot of basic things out there around surveillance, but we're finding a better way of doing visual analytics on top of that, putting a maintenance, predictive maintenance on equipment. So we're starting to see a lot of the good use cases that we've seen in other industries like manufacturing starting to get applied into prop tech, and that's using the proven technology. What it gets more exciting is a lot of the emerging tech is starting to come out now. So I'm seeing a lot of solutions around things like smartwatches and how they can be leveraged on construction sites to improve worker safety and guarantee compliance. And that's getting a lot of industry drivers behind it and governmental drivers, because a lot of these cities or governments, national governments are more concerned about safety and site. So that's starting to drive another wave going forward as well. Taking a step back. So what about smartphones and tablets? Oh, that's a great thing. Everybody now, no matter where you go across Asia, basically has a smartphone already, which means a lot of these solutions, when we look at augmented reality, oh, we're going to put it into a Google Glass or a high-end glass product. You don't need it. Everyone's already got a smartphone. So that becomes a great tool. There's still challenges around that because then you're using someone's personal device for work. So who owns the data that's on there? But these are things that can be addressed and we've proven them. So it does make it a lot easier now because you know, even for the lower cost employees that you have, you don't have to go spend a ton of money on a new device for them. They've got a device already that you can utilize. I think it's actually pretty simple. You can just download an app and maybe set some form of data security procedures on it so that they can be using their own devices. I've seen that happen for some companies that actually gone into using smartphones for on the few workers as well. Yeah, but there is always the challenge of there's always going to be another contract that they'll have to sign because it's about uh, the data privacy as well. A lot of companies try and lock it down too much where they actually own all the data on your device, which means your personal information as well. One of my former employers tried to get me to sign something like that and I refused because I don't want them having access to everything on my device, including my personal stuff. There's ways you can create containers on these devices and keep the work information completely separate from the personal information. And I think that's always the best model. You're referring to MDM tools, which is something like a mobile iron, for example, right? Yeah, the mobile device management type tools. Yeah, mobile iron is a good example of this. There's a number of other solutions in the space as well. But it basically allows you to start creating these separate containers. So what are the business models from ProTech companies that sought to disrupt the space? What I'm looking at right now, because everyone always wants to know, like, what solutions or vendors do I find interesting in the space? And I'm looking for people who leverage existing assets where we're maybe capturing data already and how we can then transform that data into intelligence and actionable intelligence. What we see is, you know, people aren't always going to be up for just starting a whole new solution and buying a bunch of new pieces of sensors and having a high CapEx spend on top of a new solution. A lot of times people have data already that they're capturing. They just don't have a solution that allows them to turn that data into intelligence. So I tend to look a little bit in that to help modify it um, or enhance the ecosystem. But I think there's a lot of other exciting models you'll see as well. There is some really cool new sensors coming out. I've been looking at a couple out of Australia. 
and they basically are doing more. So it's not just a sensor anymore that's going to capture environmental data. They're going to be putting in cameras in there as well, linking them into a mesh network. So it's getting a lot more funky. We're starting to put a lot more into a single device and capture more different types of information. So, for example, in PropTech, one of the things that is probably interesting is basically the user experience. For example, Property Guru is one, 99.co, but they actually operate very differently because Property Guru is more focused on doing search, but it is using more the advertising model as their business model. Whereas 99.co is going into the part where it vertically integrates what the real estate agent does with the property itself. So where do you see that user experience and unmet market demand actually works out in these business models then? Because I think what it is, if you focus on the end user or the customer, a lot of times it's just unmet demand. And I remember I met one of the founders of Property Guru, and he was saying that when he moved out to Singapore from the UK, he was shocked that there wasn't a way to just easily go and look up properties online. So it was a very old process. So we started by doing that, which is you know an existing business model, but then they've been able to constantly grow and go into new spaces and enhance that business model with going into complementary spaces, I guess you could say. So I like that because if you look at the customers or if you look at the employees or the workers, there's things that we can improve in this process. You know, just think about something like, and we mentioned facilities management earlier. Every building is going to have five, 10 different building management systems. So you need experts in all these different areas, but then you might do five or 10 buildings downtown. The idea is that you end up sticking a bunch of these people together there and have them work on one building. Why don't we actually move that to a more shared model, almost like an Uberization of facilities management? where you have an expert in HVAC or an expert in air quality who then manages across a whole region of the city instead of just doing it in the one building. So I think that's how you start seeing it adapt more. It's going after either the end user or the customer to find out how you can leverage technology to improve the quality of their life or a process. Which comes to the other interesting part of the business model, for example, WeWork, that you have already mentioned that has many times market valuation than its traditional players such as Jones LaSalle, which is JL and CBRE. So how does one value WeWork's business model then? Because I have this conversation with executives from these companies and my view is that where WeWork is actually monetizing is the lifetime value per customer because there's a lot of services that they provide underlying that traditional companies could not actually provide within these co-working spaces like community management or helping the companies to find customers within the community, for example. I think this is where it gets really interesting because what they're basically doing is this is all greenfield. So you're basically saying, okay, I'm going to look at an industry that's a couple hundred years old and how would I create a company to better do that today? The challenge you have if you're JLL or CBRE or Cushman and Wakefield is you've been operating one way for 100 years or so. Now, suddenly you're trying to move to digital, which means you have to adapt your entire organization. You got to bring your people on that journey with you. But someone like WeWork can do is come in and just build it greenfield and go digital from the beginning. So they become a whole digital native type company. And that allows them to really look at new business models because if it's all digital based and it's not asset heavy, it's easy to go and experiment and see what works. I mean, to be honest, on the valuation, I think everybody loves to talk about this now. Is it really worth $40 billion? Is it worth three times what CBRE is? We won't know, but I think we'll see some good tests over the next couple of years. If, as we are expecting, there's a little bit of a downturn in the economy, will we see that impact the commercial real estate industry? And will people be willing, will they be looking to it? That will be an opportunity or a threat to someone like we were. 
in theory, people might want to downsize and have more efficient office structures. That plays right into what WeWork's trying to accomplish. On the other hand, it might mean that people are just not going to want to pay for any nice enhancements and they don't really care as much about the quality of the workplace anymore. It's more just, I need something cheap to get my people to work until this economy picks up again. So doesn't this mean that the real estate is commoditized, but the user experience of real estate are not commoditized, but actually being able to be monetized to create new business models? Part of it's commoditized, but I think just because something's commoditized, that normally creates an opportunity for someone to come in and disrupt it. So yeah, it's been going in a very standard operational way for the last 50 years. But now what's happening is because you can leverage technology to do things better, faster, more efficiently, make better decisions by accessing more types of data, that's where it's going to get really interesting for some of these new companies. And you know, what's going to happen to the traditional players? Are they going to be able to adapt? I spoke to T, who is the managing director for Southeast Asia for Rework on my podcast. And one of the things he's talking about is that he worked with local real estate players, for example, in Indonesia, where they actually do profit sharing or revenue sharing for their properties so that Rework can basically go into do the facilities management. So what I'm curious now is what are the traditional companies in the prop tech space, such as JL and CBRE are doing? They are not going to just sit there and let Rework start taking up very, very long leases and start doing the same business and maybe even disrupting them in the longer term? Well, they are getting a lot more active over the last few years. And in particular, with the idea and the concept of prop tech venture capital funds. I mean, there's two different models you'll see. A lot of the big players have invested in pure prop tech VC funds. So for instance, Pi Labs has about a $20 million fund for prop tech and it's backed by CBRE. JLL works with Concrete. There's a bigger one out in uh, New York called Metaprop New York, and that actually has Cushman Wakefield, JLL, and CBRE backing it. And you've got Fifth Wall, which is a massive $240 million prop tech fund, which is backed by CBRE. So that's one where they're going into funds that are purely focused on it. But then what we've seen now is some of them are actually creating their own corporate venture capital fund. So Capital Land created C31 Ventures with about $100 million Singaporean dollars. JLL launched Spark, JLL Spark, which is their own corporate venture capital fund, which is about $100 million. And even up in Thailand, you had Sensiri launching one in, in partnership with Siam Commercial Bank, which is only a few million. But uh, what we've seen is the amount of VC funding that has gone into prop tech has tripled from 2016 to 2017. I don't have the latest numbers on it, but you know, it went from $4.2 billion to $12.6 billion in one year. And a lot of that was WeWork, so that was four points. I think it's 4.4 or 4.6, but we're seeing a lot more people putting that funding there. And I think this is a symptom or a result of what's going on in the industry. People got excited about fintech, but then they're looking for alternatives. You're getting a lot more money into the venture capital and private equity arena. So I think right now there's, what is it, close to a trillion dollars in dry powder or you know unused VC funding that's sitting out there right now. So they're constantly looking at where that next wave is going to be. So where can I go invest? So we've seen this now from the big players. They're going to invest in this area to try and get involved in the technology side, um, which means they can use those solutions either internally or try to make money as these companies rise in value and the valuation goes up. I see this happening all the time. Traditional companies building their own corporate incubators and accelerators or even innovation centers. And typically, what I always think that the innovation center doesn't actually do any real business. So will that model actually work for traditional real estate companies in prop tech then? This is a tough one. Could it work? Yes. Will it work? It's always going to be a challenge. 
You know, we saw this a lot with a lot of the telcos who created corporate venture capital arms. They would go and invest in these interesting young startups, but then they would put them into an old telco environment and it would just stagnate. They wouldn't teach them how to innovate. They'd be getting advised by somebody who might have spent 20 or 25 years, you know, selling commodity type solutions in the telco. And that doesn't mean they're going to understand how to go digital. So yes, they could do it. Is there opportunities in their existing business processes? Yes. The big game is going to be how do you transform your workplace? So the technologies are there to deliver value. The biggest challenge is going to be upskilling your workers so they understand digital and aren't afraid of it. Because let's face it, if you're you know, someone my age and older, you know, so approaching 50, and you start seeing all this new digital stuff come in, you're going to be afraid that it's going to be taking your job. So how do you make people understand the value or upskill them so that even if they do take away their job, they're doing something new going forward? So these things are not as easy as people think. We don't have a lot of great examples of where corporate VCs have just always every time hitting it out of the park and, you know, getting some great results on their investments. So I'll be very curious to see, and I'll keep tracking it closely to see how they do it. But if all else, I'm happy to see them trying because it means they understand that they need to act and they, they can't just rest on their laurels anymore. Do you find that currently in Asia Pacific, the traditional real estate companies are actually taking the lead as compared to their US and European counterparts? I think you're seeing quite a bit of it because Asia just has that much more growth right now. If you go across, especially with China, with what we're going to see going on in India, it's going to be an explosion of all different types of property investments. So I think that's going to keep Asia going big for quite a long time. Whereas in the US, it's not, the growth isn't going to be anywhere near as quick. And same thing in Europe where things are slowing down quite a bit. You know, if North America and Europe has enough challenges right now in other areas. So I think Asia is part of the exciting part because people are always building new buildings here and there's a lot of room for growth. And if you just look at the drivers, you know, in China, as they've pushed, you know, what is it, half a billion people or 600 million people into the middle class, that means those people need better housing. They need offices to go work in. So there's this constant opportunity to start driving the real growth out of Asia and then also starting to lead with technology and solutions and automating processes. That's actually very interesting because the company that we were acquired in China called the Naked Hub, they have actually done a lot more types of business models that we work don't traditionally do. They could even divide down the real estate that you occupy down to the smallest bits and also adding services on top that traditional WeWork doesn't have. So I think China itself is now particularly a different ecosystem. But you probably have done this much better than I do. What are the interesting companies currently in PropTech that you have seen that is interesting to you and why are they interesting to you? What I tend to look for is things that are solving a problem. So like I normally watch the first wave of technology go through and then we come up with a thing of now what do we do next? And I think a lot of these companies are at that wave. And one of the things I mentioned was about building management systems. What I don't like about it is it's very fragmented. If I want to be a facilities manager and manage one building, I might have to go across five or 10 different platforms to access the data. We now have all these great sensors that are capturing the data, but we don't have the actionable intelligence. So I've been following this company called Demand Logic out of the UK for the last few years. Basically, they're winning a lot of the top property deals in the UK. And all they're doing is sitting on top of existing infrastructure and existing platforms, but taking the data that you're getting today and turning it into actionable intelligence. And they do it so quickly and so efficiently that they can basically guarantee ROI in six to nine months. And this is pretty significant because as you start going towards green buildings, driving more sustainability, you know, they can create league tables on this to show you how your different buildings are performing. So that's one that I really have liked for years. I'm still hoping that they'll be coming out to Asia 
but I know they're getting pulled to the U.S. as well right now. So that's one that's not as new because it's a few years old. The newest one that's really sort of caught my eye, it's out of Norway, but a lot of the people I'm dealing with are out of the UK, and it's actually called Disruptive Technologies. And what they've created are these small sensors, and I mean small like the size of a key on your keyboard of your computer. And they're using them for basic sensor things. They can do pressure, so you can press to make a notification. They can capture temperature. They do motion so they know if a door has been open or shut. And what's so amazing about it is it's still got a 15-year battery life. It's completely secured end to end because it uses its own network, proprietary network. But it's so small and so sexy that it just it complements everything. But the price points are going to be very low on this, which is if you think about something now, even if you think about an Amazon Dash button, imagine if that was the size of a Scrabble tile. These things are going to be at about a dollar to $2.00 per month on a pure OpEx model. I don't think they've actually done their full commercial launch yet, so I am estimating on those prices. But it's gonna come in at a tiny fraction of what existing solutions cost today. And every time I've shown this at an event, I love pulling out the actual sensors because what it does, a lot of companies can do this, but they do it at something that's 20 or 30 times the size of what this is. So it's this whole idea about size does matter now because it's a small size device that can go to these low price points and it's getting very interesting. And probably the most interesting thing, I'll give you a couple of use cases that they've launched already with this. Hayworth, which is the number three manufacturer in the world of office furniture, is embedding the sensors in its chairs. So they come at such a low price point, they could stick them in every chair, which means if you want to turn it on, you just have to buy the gateway and you have your own smart office solution. They're putting them in fire doors right now in the UK, so firedoors.co.uk, because now for a very tiny price, you can have a full solution to manage all your fire doors and make sure they're shut when they're supposed to be shut. And they're doing a number of trials right now with the NHS because their temperature one, they're sticking inside of fridges to monitor vaccines. They're doing ambient temperature in the buildings. They're managing the fire doors. And then they're sticking them on water pipes as well to measure the temperature there so they can protect against Legionella. So they're getting some new disruptive models. The price points, though, are just what's really shocking and scaring a lot of people in the industry because if you can basically create a smart office solution for a few thousand bucks compared to spending tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, it's going to be an interesting option for some people. So what are the prospects like for PropTech in 2019 then? I think what you're going to see is very good prospects, but I think there's going to be some new movement as well. People are realizing that if you want to sell all this new hardware, it's difficult. The CapEx spend is hard to justify, especially if we see a downturn. So I think there's going to be a lot of people going into this analytics space, trying to go across the top and bring together all the different existing hardware components. So there's another company out there that's going to be starting up very soon. I met with them recently called Spacealytics, and they're trying to sort out the smart workplaces. Because right now what you have is you might want to use some sensors from Disruptive, like I mentioned, but you might have other video cameras that you're using, and you might have some stuff from Steelcase, some stuff from Herman Miller, some stuff from Hayworth. They all sit on different platforms. What they're trying to create is a platform that sits in the middle of all of that and becomes the platform of platforms. And basically then says, you pick out whatever you want for your smart workplace and you can plug it into our platform. We'll let you manage it from there. So I think that's a space where we'll see a lot of examples of things going forward. I also think your space is going to get a lot more interesting because I think there's some really interesting use cases on drones and how they can be used either for site inspections during the build phase. I saw an example of a drone doing some snagging. So once the building's been done, they send the camera through on a drone and it uses analytic software to identify if everything's been built perfectly into spec. And then, of course, for existing site surveillance. So that's going to get interesting, I think, also in 2019. There should be more new proof of concepts around that. 
So I think one question I probably have with you is that it seems that the construction site is not so much activity, but there's also quite a lot of significant activity happening there, right? For example, pre-formatted revolution in Philippines is the first unicorn there and it's actually doing business model on doing constructing what is called prefab houses. Mm -hmm. And then there is Cantera, which was also funded by SoftBank. SoftBank put almost a billion dollars into the company and I think they specialize in certain types of buildings but more for the residential side where they use certain materials that are actually make the building much better, easier to construct and basically have an effective ROI for managing energy. So I think the construction site don't seems to be much more active in Asia. Is that how I understand it at the moment? I would agree as well because there's a lot of new builds coming up and we don't have the same price points in Asia. It's got to be done more efficiently at a lower price point. So technology and prefab becomes very important. You know, we always look at something like China and India. You can't sell the same product that you'd be selling in the US or in Europe at that same price point. You have to be able to do it at their price points, which means everything should be manufactured locally. And if you can keep getting the pushing those prices down, more people start having better access to housing. The one thing I'd say on this Talking about prop tech in 30 minutes or so is very difficult because it's the world's largest industry and it goes into so many different areas. So we could probably just spend an hour just going through the construction side of it alone. And I just wanted to close this because I've been always looking at the construction side of prop tech and less on the management and facilities side. But Charles, you're right. We can't spend the whole hour talking about prop tech. So in closing, what books have you recently read that actually have an impact to your work and personal life? We were actually talking about this the other day with one of my friends is that I've been listening to Blinkist a lot and you get these quick snapshots of books. And what I realized is when you break down a lot of these books, they say the same thing you've been learning for the last 20 or 30 years. So that I haven't had as many books that have really grasped me recently. One thing I did have fun in is I've been looking into podcasts and how people do podcasts. And Tim Ferriss did one about how to build a popular podcast. And just hearing about how people used interviews to get information out of people I can't wait to start doing that just when I start talking to some of my customers because I got some great ideas about how to engage with people and get them to really open up. So you're going to start a podcast soon next year? <laughs> we'll have to think about that one still. It's a lot of work to do that. So I don't know how you find the time to do as many as you do. Well, I'm beginning to getting people to come and help me on the podcast. So that should be pretty okay for the next year. And I think I can use that excess time to actually do something more productive. What's amazing is it seems like we just did your 200th episode interview like a while ago, and now you're already, this is going to be number 281, I think. <laughs> 280, and then maybe we'll get to 300 very soon. So how do my audience find you then? I can be found at my website, which is charlesreedanderson.com, and I'm on LinkedIn under Charles Reed Anderson, and my Twitter handle is CRA Singapore. And you can Google me at Bernard Leong, or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and now Spotify. And of course, give us a five-star rating on iTunes because it helps us in discovery and also a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And if you have any spare time, just tweet me a review or you can also send me feedback through our Telegram and also now a LinkedIn group as well. And this episode is co-produced by myself and Carol In, and we will definitely look forward to actually having a much more interesting time in 2019. So once again, Charles, Happy New Year, because we forgot to say that to you just now. <laughs> oh, thanks. Happy New Year to you as well.